Hello, and welcome back to the Unknown Friends Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This is episode 12 of season 3, and I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wham Productions. If you are listening to today's episode on part 3 of Dante's Divine Comedy, then you've probably been following along over the last few weeks as we discussed parts 1 and 2. But just in case you're new to Unknown Friends and just dropped into today's episode, I'll just let you know that this year I am reviewing trilogies exclusively, and I'm breaking each one down so that we spend a separate episode on each of the three books in each trilogy. So currently we are in the middle of the Divine Comedy, about to finish it today with part three, Paradiso. So if you haven't yet listened to my last two episodes, which covered Inferno and Purgatorio, I recommend you go back and listen to those two first before coming back to this week's episode. So with that quick preface, let's dive right into this wonderful conclusion of Dante's Divine Comedy. So I promised last time that I would cover the very end of Purgatorio in today's episode. So let's start there with uh, Dante the Pilgrim's real, complete act of repentance that finally happens when he meets Beatrice on the top of Mount Purgatory. And this repentance enables him to move forward and crown his journey with a vision of paradise. So with Virgil's help, Dante has received a moral education as he climbed Mount Purgatory. He has achieved a significant amount of self-knowledge and self-control, and Virgil has crowned and mitered Dante lord of himself. But this is not the end of his education or his spiritual transformation. There is still more fullness of character and fullness of life for Dante to acquire. So it's after Virgil has pronounced Dante a free man that Beatrice arrives. And at this point, Virgil recedes into the background and leaves Dante to be led on into paradise by Beatrice. But when Beatrice first appears, she is a little hard on Dante. Um, I think justly so, but it is a little unexpected because we've only had Dante's perspective so far. Um, his adoration for Beatrice and his longing to see her. And then she shows up and literally the first thing out of her mouth is, how did you dare to come here? So Dante is kind of struck dumb for a moment. And Beatrice then launches into an unsparing account of Dante's spiritual failures in his life up to this point. She gives this account first talking about herself and Dante before her death, uh, describing how her influence had drawn him toward God for a while. She says, I led him and turned him with me toward the true and right. But she goes on to say that when she died, he lost his way. She says, he turned his steps along a way not true, pursuing the false images of good which promise all and never follow through. And a few lines later, she adds, So low he'd fallen then that every means to heal his soul had been cut short except to show him the lost people. So this is interesting. According to Beatrice, Dante had strayed so far, 
had pursued those false goods so long that the only cure for him, the only way to lead him to salvation had been this journey through the afterlife that he's taken, especially Inferno, where the lost souls live. And so Beatrice gives Dante her account of his life, his uh, departure from truth and goodness, and she says, So great an accusation should be met by your confession. Is this true, then? Say. So this is the moment. This is the opportunity for him to return to the path of truth. Is this true, she asks, and a very simple yes is all that's required. But Dante can hardly speak. In the poem, he tells us that Beatrice's words were like a sword cutting him. You know, self-knowledge is one thing. Experiencing some suffering as a result of your actions and recognizing your failings and sort of uh, mentally, privately confessing to them. But confessing out loud to another human being, and particularly to the human being Dante cares about more than any other, that's something else. Uh, that That is hard. But it's absolutely necessary. And Dante finds it will open for him the pathway to truth and love and joy and God himself. So he's speechless for a moment, but Beatrice prods a little. She asks what he's thinking, asks for an answer, and Dante tells us confusion and fear forced something like a yes out of my mouth. You need your eyes to help you make it out. But that confused, tiny, hardly audible yes was enough. He has finally with two-thirds of the poem behind us, he has finally returned to the straight and true way. Now he's on the path to paradise. So confession, it, it's a key moment. One of the most important moments, I think, in the Divine Comedy. And Dante's confession signifies his newfound humility and self-understanding and his ultimate choice to repent, to turn from his aimless wanderings, and follow Beatrice's lead toward God once again. And that's what follows in part three of the Divine Comedy. Beatrice conducts Dante through heaven until they finally get a glimpse of God himself in the very last canto of the poem. Now, the whole topic of Beatrice leading Dante to God is worth discussing for a few moments. It's connected to the complex themes of love and desire that run through the Divine Comedy. I can't begin to do these themes justice in only a few minutes discussion, but I think we can hit a couple key points. We talked about desire a little bit in the last episode. Uh, Mount Purgatory is broadly categorized according to people's disordered desires, those who in life desired things that weren't good, false images of good, as Beatrice called them, or those who either lacked desire for good things or desired them with excessive love. So Dante believes that we all have innate desire for something. We have a lack or void in ourselves. And ultimately, God is the fulfillment of our desire. 
In some sense, he is precisely what we are desiring, though we often don't realize it or don't admit it. Instead, we choose to try all these other things. And for Dante, that's where sin comes in, through all our willful attempts to find fulfillment in things other than God. But Dante sees something beautiful in the way God made the world. He sees the good things in the world as uh, kind of channels or reflections of their creator. Any truly good thing in our lives is a witness of the divine. Now, Dante sees this fact as both a blessing and a potential danger. The danger is that we may be too easily satisfied. We, we may pour all our desire into these good things and never look up, look beyond and see the God who made them, who will fulfill our desires so much more richly than anything in creation can. And this is not a trivial danger. This is real. This is exactly what the souls in the top three terraces of Dante's purgatory are recovering from, those who sinned through lust, gluttony, or avarice. But the good things in God's creation can, and ideally do, have a more positive effect. We may focus on them for a time and even feel contented with them for a time, but the reality is that they can't satisfy our desire. Only God can do that. So the very best thing that can and should happen is when God's good creation points us to the source of good. And in the Divine Comedy, this is what we see happening with Dante and Beatrice. So it might seem a little weird as you read, just because the natural question arises, uh, is Dante the Pilgrim a little too focused on Beatrice herself? Um, over and over throughout Paradiso, as Beatrice guides him through heaven, Dante keeps coming back to how beautiful Beatrice is. And I mean, she is. She's, she's a heavenly soul. She is pure and radiant and celestial. And so, of course, Dante the mortal is like stunned over and over every time he looks at her. And she just keeps getting more beautiful as they get closer to the center of paradise where God dwells. But here's the thing. A fascinating shift happens over the course of Paradiso. The poet makes it quite clear. God is the beauty of Beatrice. She is only lovely as she is a channel for the divine. And so while at first Dante the pilgrim is just kind of smitten with her, the truth is that he's really smitten with God in her, though he doesn't know it at first. And as he journeys deeper into heaven, and she keeps turning his gaze onto all the other glorious souls in heaven, and all of them echo Beatrice in their praises of God, gradually Dante's focus shifts away from Beatrice and toward the divine. And the more he looks at God, or even other souls who reflect God, the more he desires and loves God, the source of all this goodness and beauty. And I love how Beatrice and other heavenly guides Dante meets consistently redirect his gaze. It happens 
quite a few times. Dante will look with awe and admiration at Beatrice, and she'll look at him and smile, and then turn her eyes on God. And of course, the natural thing for Dante to do is follow her gaze and join her in looking at God. And I think that is a a beautiful picture of what's possible with God's creation and with human relationships especially. We see God in the world and in other people, and we may not realize it at first. We may think we love the things or the people for themselves, but anything and everything good is ultimately divine. It's not human. So it's him that we are being drawn to all the time. And those connections we forge with human beings can ultimately draw us upward if we will seek the source of the goodness we love in them. I think that's really cool. And I think Dante is onto something real here. So yes, we should remember to guard ourselves against being satisfied with created beauties, but they can and should redirect our focus to the beautiful creator. Now, to balance all this just a little bit, in the Divine Comedy, and perhaps more broadly in Catholic thought, this realization that fellow humans can guide us toward God sometimes turns into the idea that fellow humans can be mediators between us and God, which is an extra step that I am not necessarily on board with. So in the Divine Comedy, we see Dante uh, literally praying to Beatrice and to the Virgin Mary, for instance, asking her to, uh, like, grant Dante the grace to be able to see Christ. And the language of his prayer is so worshipful. Uh, It's really language that I believe should be reserved exclusively for Christ himself, calling Mary the fulcrum of the everlasting plan and the spring of ever-living hope for men that die, I would say those kinds of descriptions belong to Christ. So yes, I think Dante is right that our relationships with good people can bring us closer to God, but those people are not between us and God. They are beside us, pointing us in God's direction. Now, that said, It's not like Dante has no concept of personally encountering Christ. I think he's just so keenly aware of God's glory and holiness that he's hesitant to dare even imagine himself as having a personal one-on-one relationship with God. I think this hesitancy comes from humility, and it is right to remember God's perfect goodness that's really beyond our comprehension. But I think it is possible to keep him so elevated in our minds that we lose sight of the fact that he does want to be our father and brother and friend. His intent is to dwell in and among us, however unworthy we might feel of that honor. So all that to say, I appreciate Dante's humility and his deep sense of awe every time he speaks of the divine. I think it just creates a little confusion when he portrays uh, Mary or Beatrice, for instance, as intercessors 
between him and God when Christ himself is our intercessor. But, be that as it may, at the very, very end of Paradiso, the the last few lines, Dante the Pilgrim does finally have a momentary personal encounter with the divine, and it is beautiful. And we will get to that in just a few moments. Heading in that direction, let's spend a couple minutes talking about the character of God in the Divine Comedy, which is a glorious topic to get to discuss. God is always a bit of a mystery for Dante. Dante may be bold enough to write a poem about an imaginary journey through hell, purgatory, and heaven, but he's not so bold as to claim to be able to fathom God. Over the course of the Divine Comedy, we get lots of different accounts of God, some reliable, some unreliable, and we're left to kind of put the pieces together ourselves to some extent. In the Inferno, we often get a skewed perspective on the character of God. Dante the Pilgrim travels down the circles of hell, hearing sinners' stories about what they did with their lives and why they're where they are in the Inferno, and they often put their own little spin on things. Most of them, obviously, don't think too well of God. Uh, Usually they believe that their damnation is unjust, and we get a lot of negative perspectives on God in the Inferno. But as Dante travels, he slowly learns not to believe everything that the lost souls say. And by the end of Inferno, he recognizes the justice of their fates, despite their protestations to the contrary. He realizes that these souls really chose their own damnation, and they wouldn't accept God's mercy if he offered it which of course he did. So ultimately, we get an image of a just God from Inferno. But we don't yet see many other aspects of his nature. So move on to Purgatorio, and the souls there are much more positive about God, because they are actually seeking him. They desire him and his love, and they've experienced his mercy and accepted it. And the testimonies of these people we can put more trust in. They're much more reliable than the souls in hell. So, for instance, some of the very first souls Dante meets on Mount Purgatory tell him how they repented of their sins literally in the last moments of their life on earth. They had done nothing good with their lives, but as they lay dying, they reached out to God in repentance, and he heard them and received them with open arms. So here we start to glimpse God as a being who longs to welcome us into his love. He is a merciful God. And even more than that, he is a God who pursues us, who knows us better than we know ourselves, and who anticipates our needs. And then we come to Paradiso. And Paradiso could almost be described as a Theology 101 course. Not quite, but we do delve into a lot of specific questions about uh, the nature of God and also various uh, church doctrines and things. 
That said, while Dante the Pilgrim does receive some clear doctrinal teaching, at the same time, we start to see how indescribable uh, and incomprehensible the divine actually is. We can spend as long as we want uh, explaining the Trinity or the Incarnation, but we're never going to fully grasp it, at least not while we're in mortal bodies. And Dante realizes this. And so throughout Paradiso, though he tries to convey some theological precepts he believes are true, when it comes to actually describing heaven or the souls there, or most of all, God himself, Dante feels completely incapable. As he tries to put into words the the glories of the heavenly hosts, over and over again, he'll start to describe something, and then after a minute, he just stops and says, you know what, that's the best I can do, and it is miserably insufficient. I am stretching my poetic faculties to the limit, and I can't even capture a fraction of the beauty of divine paradise. But God may be an incalculable mystery to us, but there's one thing we can trust, and it centers our lives as Christians, and it centers the entire divine comedy. The highest good is the will of God. We may not understand it, but it is good, and in that truth, we can utterly rest, and we'll find joy and peace and love there. And Paradiso contains some beautiful passages that describe this. So midway through his journey through heaven, Dante the Pilgrim is in the circle of justice. Uh, Actually, I should explain. Um, Paradise, as he depicts it, uh, kind of has levels, but they are not so much to rank souls in heaven as they are just to group and characterize them. So for instance, souls who in life were bold warriors for Christ are in the circle of uh, the militant called the circle of Mars, because Dante's Paradiso levels are symbolized by planets. It's all in uh, medieval cosmology, which I unfortunately cannot get into right now. Anyway, at one point, Dante is in the circle of justice, the circle of Jupiter, in Canto 19 of Paradiso, and he's being taught about the nature of justice and divine providence, and he hears this, What in itself is good, the primal will, never moves from itself, the highest good. All things are just as chiming with this will. It's drawn by no created good, but brings that very good to being by its rays. So the highest good, the primal will of God, defines and creates all justice, all truth, all goodness. But then there's another short passage that I think I like even better. Quite early in Paradiso, one of the first souls Dante meets in heaven is expressing her joy and contentment in paradise, and this is how she describes it. Heaven is to live in loving, necessarily, for it is of the essence of this bliss to hold one's dwelling in the divine will, who makes our single wills the same. In his will is our peace. 
and those are recurring themes throughout Paradiso. The essence of bliss is to dwell in God's will. So, to wrap up our discussion of the Divine Comedy, I just want to conclude by reading to you the last few stanzas of the poem. Dante is pouring his utmost creative efforts into this culmination of his work, this last canto, Canto 33 of Paradiso, when the pilgrim finally beholds the divine. After his long journey, up and up and up, he finally gets this vision of God, whom he essentially can only describe as light. And he tries to explain more specifically what he's seeing, but he says his words are absolutely inadequate. Though, of course, we can read them and and appreciate the beauty of his poetry. But this is what he writes. Within that brilliant and profoundest being of the deep light, three rings appeared to me, three colors and one measure in their gleaming. That circle which appeared, in my poor style, like a reflected radiance in thee, after my eyes had studied it a while, within and in its own hue seemed to be tinted with the figure of a man. And so I gazed on it absorbedly. The truth I longed for came to me, smiting my mind like lightning flashing bright. Here ceased the powers of my high fantasy. Already were all my will and my desires turned as a wheel in equal balance by the love that moves the sun and other stars. And that is how the Divine Comedy ends. Dante the Pilgrim came a long way over the course of the poem. From wandering in a dark wilderness, ignorant and afraid, uh, having left the straight path far behind, to now, at the end of his journey, standing in God's presence as a transformed man, smitten by the splendor of divine goodness, and now willingly governed by the love that rules the universe. So, these have been just a few, a very few, of the many reasons why the Divine Comedy is worth reading, and why it has endured for 700 years as an essential, monumental piece of Western literature. Uh, Dr. Stephen Smith, who teaches Dante at my alma mater, Hillsdale, says that you can almost receive an entire education just from studying the Divine Comedy. Which tells you just what a small slice of Dante's thought I've been able to discuss in these three episodes. There is so much more there. There is so much more there in his explorations of uh, culture and politics and religion and eternity and the human soul. So I think the only solution is that you have to study the poem for yourself. And that's why I've discussed it on the podcast, to encourage you to take up the rewarding challenge of reading Dante. So thank you so much for joining me for this three-part series on the Divine Comedy, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Up next is one of my favorite trilogies of all time, even though the author didn't intend it to be published as a trilogy at all. 
I am talking about J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So two weeks from today, I will be back with our first episode in that trilogy, in which I'll introduce the series and start talking about book one, The Fellowship of the Ring, and then we'll continue in the following two episodes with discussions of The Two Towers and the last book, The Return of the King. So be sure to come back for those next three episodes because I sure plan to enjoy discussing Tolkien's work and I'm hopeful that you will enjoy the discussions as well. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and if you're ever interested, you can learn more about me and my work as a Christian playwright on my website, kittywaynproductions.com. I'll see you in two weeks for The Lord of the Rings. Music